Friends, what are you expecting on the other side of the coronavirus pandemic? To be honest, it's a little hard to think about the other side, isn't it? Uh, when the news from many parts of the world and even in our own country is so dire. This ordeal seems far from over and we're still looking for the day when things can return to something like they were before. But I've been hoping and praying that things won't actually return to something like they were before. I've been hoping and praying that this worldwide crisis will lead to a new openness to the gospel, a new awareness that we are not in control, that we cannot determine our own futures, that there is something seriously wrong with our world, and so to a new search for an answer and for real hope. I've been praying that, and, and I'll keep praying that. But to be honest, I don't see a lot of evidence of it so far. For alongside the fragility of life that this pandemic has exposed, we have seen outbreaks of the most extraordinary selfishness and hardness of heart. I'm reminded uh, of a friend who, when travelling overseas, was asked, how are things in Australia? And his reply was, there are floods in Queensland, bushfires in South Australia, and still there's no repentance. He was, of course, riffing on Luke 13 and Jesus' words about the Tower of Siloam. Disaster should cause us to reassess how we've been living. But it doesn't always. All of us, I take it, want to see a wave of revival, a widespread positive response to the message of real hope, the real hope that we have to give to the world. For there is only one hope for a world decaying and crumbling, where the limits of human achievement are placarded before us. Sure, we might eventually get a vaccine to protect us from this virus, but we're assured there'll be another one sometime soon. Where a sense of shame and helplessness and at times outright anger at what's happening and what we're doing to each other seems like an appropriate response. There's only one hope in the face of all of that. And that hope is Jesus, the king in God's kingdom, who came to defeat death and all the consequences of human reassertion, self-assertion and a refusal to live as God's creatures in God's creation. There is a rescue that has been provided and a secure place of refuge for all of us. Perhaps you're sometimes tempted to think that uh, if only you were able to share that message clearly enough, powerfully enough, persuasively enough, if only you had the right formula for a good sermon, then everyone who hears it would have no real choice but to respond in repentance and faith. Friends, what exactly are your expectations about the response of people to your speaking of, your sharing Jesus Christ with those around you? Well, as we've travelled through Matthew's Gospel, we've seen a variety of responses, haven't we? Jesus, physically present, manifesting his glory by healing the sick, commanding nature, expelling evil, revealing the truth about God, Jesus right there in front of them, and yet the result has not been a universal, joyful, repentant embrace of the message he brings. As we move into Matthew 13 this morning, 
And the third of the five great teaching blocks in this gospel, the only one actually addressed to the crowds, we can look back over two chapters of the narrative since the Sermon on Mission and see John the Baptist, imprisoned and bewildered. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? The frustration of a generation who wanted John and Jesus to play by the script they'd written. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. The hard-hearted refusal to repent in Chorazin and Bethsaida despite the fact that he had done such great work there. The condemnation of the Pharisees. Your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. The plotting of the Pharisees in the wake of the healing of the man with the withered hand. The gathering crowd and wonder at the healing of the man who was blind and mute because he'd been possessed of a demon. The accusation of the Pharisees, this one cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. The demand for a sign, Jesus' own family seeking him out, wanting to have a quiet word. It hadn't all been cheering and adulation. It hadn't all been quiet reflection on the seriousness of his presence among them and what he was saying. There'd been quite a bit of opposition, really. And the crowds remained rather fickle and uncommitted. They'd seen that not everyone was committed. Not everyone was convinced. Perhaps they noticed especially that their leaders were not convinced. How do you explain that? Jesus was standing there right in front of them, the Son of God himself, speaking the truth, demonstrating the truth by all he did, and yet such a mixed response. Well, that's when Jesus told one of his most famous parables, the parable of the sower, beginning a chapter of parables. And we take up Matthew's account in chapter 13 and verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered around him so that he got into a boat and sat down and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables saying, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell on the path and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. You see, in that context, and the opening words of the chapter place this discourse firmly in that context, the parable is an explanation of what has been happening. I'm not sure what the crowds made of this parable when they first heard it. I'm sure the basic point was clear enough. Seed is sown and the result is varied. And that's not so much to do with the seeds as it is to do with the soil or lack of it in which they land. Good seed, indiscriminately sown, and some grows while some does not. It would have been a familiar enough scene in those, that agrarian society of first century Galilee. Nothing out of the ordinary. No farmer expects a 100% return when he goes out and sows seed. Life's just not like that. But 
Jesus clearly wanted those listening to know that what he was saying was important. He who has ears, let him hear. This is something worth understanding. It's something you need to think about. It helps you make sense of the world where you're living in. Four types of soil, the path, the rocky ground, the thorny ground, the good soil, and variation even in the good soil, a hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. But you need to understand that. He who has ears, let him hear. And looking around this morning, like that morning really, I take it that's all of us. We all have ears, so let's hear. It's strange that Jesus doesn't immediately add the question that so many Bible teachers seem to want to add at the end of this parable. So which soil are you? Jesus doesn't seem to push in that direction. Well, not straight away, at least. This parable is not, at least not at first, a call to self-examination. Though Jesus did emphasise the importance of what he was saying, he really left the parable up in the air a bit. And perhaps it was the look on the faces of the crowds that provoked the disciples to ask the question they do as soon as they get Jesus alone. Take a look at verse 10. Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand, you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they've closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they do see, and your ears, for they do hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. At first glance, it might seem that this parable was told as an encouragement to adopt the right posture before the word of God. Make sure you're the good soil. Watch out for hardness of heart, the schemes of the evil one, the distraction of the world and your own desires. And there's something in that. But it seems that actually Jesus was using this familiar image to make a slightly different point. It's a point he knew would not be grasped by the crowds but he would not let it be lost on the disciples. For Jesus' preaching in parables was not simply a way of moving from the known to the unknown, making it easy for his audience to understand. It was not simply an exercise in excellent communication by a master teacher. It was also an exercise in concealing the truth from those who would not come to Jesus. Another friend of mine likes to describe the parables like those huge automatic doors in supermarkets. You know, walk towards them and they open up, walk away from them and they close. If you're walking towards Jesus, the meaning of the parables opens up before you. They do provide challenge and they do provide comfort. But if you will not come to Jesus, 
If you're not walking towards him, if you're even walking away from him, they close up and their meaning remains hidden. But it's actually a little more even than that, isn't it? Did you notice those words in verse 11? To you, disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, the crowds, it has not been given. Given, not given. The words of Jesus, this parable and the others, keep the truth from those to whom it has not been given, just as they make clearly known the truth to those to whom it has been given. For God is God, and he decides how he is known and by whom he is known. The Lord is sovereign in this matter of making himself and his truth known, just as he is in every other area of our existence. And the teaching of Jesus can be both an encouragement and challenge to those God has given the gift of life, building on what they have already been given, but it can be an exercise of judgment towards others. And the point is that in both cases, the decision is ultimately God's. We might be able to explain the means of judgment in terms of the schemes of the Satan, the pressure of the world, and the allure of what the world has to offer, but behind all of that, God chooses who will come to know him and who will not. Jesus reminded the disciples of Isaiah's commissioning in Isaiah 6, a commission to preach to those who will not listen, who refuse to understand, who keep themselves from seeing and reject discernment. And in fact, Isaiah was told that his preaching would even make things worse. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Isaiah's preaching would itself be a judgment on rebellious Judah and Jerusalem. And Jesus drew a direct line between Isaiah's preaching and his own. God's sovereign decision to judge then through the words of the prophet and God's sovereign decision to judge through these words of Jesus. And in both cases, there would also be those who would hear and be saved. The crowds will not understand because it has not been given to them to understand. That's why Jesus teaches them in parables. But in the midst of this judgment comes incredible mercy. For the God who conceals himself and his purpose from some also makes himself known and his purpose known to others. And those who come to Jesus, as the disciples did, will not only have parables. They will hear what countless godly, faithful servants of the past long to hear. They will see what the prophets long to see. The judgment of God entirely vindicated the salvation of God, secured in an amazing way. I hope you didn't just skip over that little word in verse 16. Blessed. Not, oh, how clever, or how diligent, or how wise, but blessed. Blessed are your eyes, for they do see, and your ears, for they do hear. 
For it is God who has opened those eyes and it is God who has opened those ears. So the parables, they're not so much directions for what we are to do as they are explanations of what God has already done and themselves are means by which God intends to do what he is yet to do. Which is why, it seems clear, Jesus explains to his disciples the parable of the sower. Lots of people over the years have renamed this parable the parable of the seeds or the parable of the soils, but Jesus himself calls it the parable of the sower. Because though we can identify what has happened in each group Jesus mentions in the parable, we can identify what type of ground the seed has been sown in, we can identify the threat in each case to a fruitful hearing of the word, the sower remains sovereign. His purpose is not thwarted. His plan has not changed the indiscriminate scattering of the seed has always been part of his plan. The free and open announcement of a salvation fully accomplished, the totally free offer of the gospel. Yet it's all about the sower in the end. He opens the eyes of some and he does not open the eyes of others. The hope lies not in making yourself better soil, in the end, the hope lies in the sower who knows exactly what he's doing. So in that light, hear the explanation Jesus gives the disciples of the parable in verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. <coughs> As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another 60 and another 30. I love the little paraphrase of one writer. The first soil did not receive the word at all, though it listened to it. The second received it with joy, but under pressure let it go. The third received it with only one hand because the other hand was busy. Only the fourth soil received the seed of the word with both hands. This is what the disciples had been witnessing as Jesus had gone about teaching in Galilee. Jesus was openly teaching, welcoming all who would come to hear him. And yes, can you see it now? Those three great enemies of the word, the devil, the world, and the desires of the heart, they've been at work too. Open your eyes and see and be warned. But the initiative always lies with the sower. The seed is sown along the path. It's sown in the rocky ground. It's sown among the thorns. It's sown in the good soil. What is going on around you 
is salvation in the midst of judgment. And the sower has not been blindsided for a moment. He knows the hardness that pretends to hear but will not really listen. He knows the shallowness of a hearing that will not withstand challenge. He knows those who hear but whose fruitfulness is squeezed out by competing interests and competing loyalties. He knows those who will be fruitful in various ways and to various degrees, but who will prove themselves to be good soil in the end. And still he sows. Sows widely. Sows generously. A free, genuine, open offer. Come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Blessing to those to whom it has been given but judgment to those to whom it has not. It's not wrong at all, is it, to ask what soil will you prove to be, to be warned about superficial listening and the devil's eagerness to snatch the word away, about the very real challenge hardship and persecution will bring, about the undermining distraction of the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, the word of the gospel that Jesus brings is so important, you ought to expect that the devil will throw everything at you in order to keep you from hearing it and understanding it and persevering in the new life in the light of it. But the parable actually has a little more bite than that, doesn't it? When you see what Jesus told the disciples about why he taught in parables, the preaching of the word is both a means of salvation and a confirmation of judgment. Paul wrote to the Corinthians about the same message, even the same messengers, being both a fragrance from life to life and a fragrance from death to death. That is what the disciples had seen at work. As some people came towards Jesus in faith, the crowd stood there in the middle, hearing but still indecisive, and the scribes and Pharisees responded by plotting against him. And Jesus said, you need to hear this. The one who has ears, let them hear. The sower is doing his work. The seed is being sown. And the varied reaction to his words, in the short term and over the long haul, does not change the fact that he is the sower. And his purpose will be fulfilled. So I'm still praying for a wide open door for the gospel. I'm still praying that on the other side of this pandemic, there might be a mighty movement of God that sees men and women from every nation on the earth coming to Jesus in repentance and faith. But my hope is anchored not in the human capacity to respond to this pandemic and its particular challenges the way it should, but in the sower who went out to sow. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for a word that has been given for your son, the sower, who has given us this word. We thank you for blessing us by opening our eyes and opening our ears. And we pray that you might keep us alert, keep us faithful, and keep us trusting in him. For this we ask in his name. Amen.